Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is episode 21 of Yoga Land. My guest today is Holly Whitaker. When I started this podcast, I said to myself, and I actually said to you in one of the episodes, that I wanted to cover the real stuff that people go through in life. I wanted to talk about our struggles and our pain, not just, you know, about how to perfect our handstands. And I feel like Holly does that in such a forthright and courageous way. And I, I so appreciated talking to her. Holly and I became friends several years ago when we worked together at a startup, and she got in touch with me a couple years after we were working together and told me that she was getting really into yoga, both kundalini and vinyasa, and she was taking classes online on Yoga Glow with Jason, and she'd finally put the connection together that we were married. She'd also started a website called Hip Sobriety, so she quit drinking and was doing a lot of work in that space to help others quit drinking. And so I wanted to talk to her on the podcast about how yoga and meditation have played into her recovery process. And it turns out that they've played a huge role. Holly's still publishing her website and she also has a great podcast with her friend, Laura McCowan called Home. So if you are struggling with addiction or you have family members or students who are struggling, I hope you find the podcast to be a great resource for you, a great source of support. And I highly recommend that you check out Holly either in her podcast or on her site or both. Holly is so knowledgeable about the impact that alcohol abuse can have, not just on the individual, but on the population as a whole. And I learned so much from her about how meditation has helped her, how the breathing practices have helped her, how certain asana techniques have helped her, and the difference between how kundalini helps her and vinyasa helps her. So she has a great, interesting perspective. She's also really fun and a real deep sweetheart. I love her. Enjoy the podcast, everyone. You know, we knew each other when we worked together a few years ago, several years ago. Yeah. And then I remember you got in touch with me when you were getting more and more into yoga and talked about your recovery process and stuff. And so I followed you and followed your podcast. And it's just interesting. Like when I knew you, I think probably was, you know, right before you were feeling really challenged by drinking and things like that. And I had no idea. And I just remember when I heard from you, I thought like, this is that classic thing of you really never know what someone's going through. You really never know like someone's burden, like someone's story and what they're going through. So can you talk a little bit about kind of like what your life was like on the outside and versus what it felt like on the inside when you started to realize like, this is not really working so well for me. Yeah. When did you work there? I don't want to name the company, but when was that? Was that 2000? It must've been about 2011. Was that right? I think it was like 2010, 2011. Yeah. Yeah. I snapped when I took that job. That was, I took that job in 2009 and I immediately, it was, cause you know, it was really like, it was a very, very, uh, like the sky was the limit in terms of what we could do. And everyone drank the Kool-Aid and we were on a mission. And I bought, I, I mean, I, I believe in the company still. And I, I loved that job and it came on like the opportunity opened up and, and I could, I saw this potential for being able to really, you know, grow my career at the same time that I lost a, a relationship And I had been in a relationship with a man off and on. And first of all, that job, I, I, when I took that job, I started losing my hair. I, um, I went through this, like, it was so stressful. Um, but I loved it. It was like this perfect fit. And so I started to go on benders, like to, I was the head of our accounting department. So go on benders to close the weekend. I'd spend my weekend in bed, just managing my energy to get a lot of work done. And I, I, this was when I started pulling all nighters and I would, you know, rotate between pot and alcohol and cigarettes and, um, caffeine. And in March, 2010, about a year into it, and and probably a bit before you came on, I lost this relationship. I thought I was going to marry the man. And I thought this was kind of my last chance for having kids. My last chance, this was in my mind, this is what I I believe a lot of women feel like we kind of have this window and when we miss it. And so I felt like, okay, I I threw myself into this career 
And also I really stopped respecting my body in a major way. I had always struggled. I had to struggle with eating disorders and I'd never had a healthy relationship with pot or alcohol. I mean, to be clear, but there was a breaking point where when I lost this relationship and I was left, I, I was living, you know, by myself, I just went down the rabbit hole. And then I got into an even more complicated relationship with an older man you know, kind of a powerful, successful older man. And so really you knew me in the place where everything was actually together. You knew me in the place where I was the only place in my life where I felt good um, and I felt effective and I felt empowered because everything else in the background was um, a mess and it was it was just duct tape to keep the thing going. Mm-hmm. So I've listened to your whole podcast about like your story and I encourage people to listen to it. It's a great podcast. So I know that, you know, sort of your quote unquote rock bottom was one of, like you said, one of those benders from work, you were up all night yeah. and you woke up in the morning and, and you didn't remember, I think going to bed. And but, mm-hmm. so what, so what was it mentally and emotionally that brought you to this decision? Like I, I need to live a sober life. Like, do you remember? I never thought I need to live a sober life. <laughs> um, it was, I couldn't do it anymore. I was looking like, sh- I looked like um, crap in my real life. I couldn't hide it. My face, I was dying. And I, I have explained it as being like a bulimic lifestyle where I would go and clean up the mess and then keep it together and then fall off the rails and go down into the rabbit hole. And I was severely bulimic, right? So I was binging and purging a lot of food and my life was just like, it just felt like cleaning up a toilet bowl of puke. That's what my life felt like. Um, I felt awful all the time. I had lost purpose in life. I didn't know, I didn't want to live. I didn't know why I was like, I didn't get the point of it. I didn't get the point of it. And so for me, it was just a matter of being in so much pain that I broke and I just got on my knees. And um, it's so cliche because you hear this so many times from people. And I was just telling you, I was watching Eat, Pray, Love last night and I'd forgotten it. I didn't watch it in years, but she goes downstairs and asks for, you know, like she gets on her knees and pray. Like, but that was it. Like, I think I it's in the bathroom ha- floor for everyone too. It has been yeah, for yeah, me yeah. in my life. Yeah. 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 I screamed, I need help and I can't do this anymore. I mean, I was dying and I just wanted out of it, you know, like I was stuck and there felt like there was no escape and I wanted out of it and I didn't know what to do, felt there was no escape. And so that was, uh, that was the turning point for me and the breaking point for me, but I didn't ask for a sober life. I just, you know, for me, like the ideal situation would have been that I could just keep doing what I was doing, but not look, you know, not feel awful or, you know, like it just, it wouldn't have looked like what it looks like today. That was not the ideal situation for me at the time. Yeah. You are living a sober life now. So how, so then how did that switch happen? (laughs) I mean, I know it wasn't immediate and it took, it, took a few tries, right? Yeah. Well, I, there was a couple of things in you, we, you and I worked in healthcare. I had a lot of friends that were in healthcare and, um, I had a couple of days after this, I had a conversation with one of the doctors that worked there and he was talking about somebody else having borderline personality disorder. And for some reason it just really set off, uh, an alarm in my head and it sounded like, okay, I might have this. And then I was babysitting his kids that night and I went and I researched borderline personality disorder and I met the criteria for it. Like, like, like 12, I think it was 12 out of 13 that I was affirmative. Yes. That's I, I can identify as that. So for me, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't like I need to get sober. It was, I need to like, something's wrong. And for me, that was the first thing I was able to identify as being wrong or I did not have borderline personality disorder. Addiction can emulate borderline personality disorder. So anyway, this was, it basically, it said, stop drinking. That was what it said. It said, stop drinking. And for me, that was palatable. I could stop drinking. Um, if it was going to induce psychosis, that was enough for me. But funny enough, I, couldn't at that point say, um, I have a problem with drinking, even though I knew I had a problem with drinking, but it was just easier to sit down with my family and say, this is what's going on. And, and, and they were so, they were so relieved. So yeah, so it, it looked like that. And for me, uh, it was just, I kind of fell backwards into it. The first thing I did was I read, I read a book called the easy way to control alcohol by Alan Carr. And 
that changed my mind within two weeks after reading this book, I wanted to stop drinking. And that completely changed my mind about, about drinking. And it didn't go so well. It wasn't a very holistic path because all I did was stop drinking and I didn't do anything to actually work on myself because addiction is a symptom. It's the thing we do. Like it's the thing we do to escape all the stuff underneath that hurt. And so I fell right back into it. And that was when my, my real recovery began, which was, which was, um, around January of 2013. You know, it's so fascinating. A few things that you said just brought things up for me. The first is that I think it's so fascinating that when I started working at the company where we worked, um, it was the first company that I ever worked in where it was more like male dominated than female dominated. One of the things that I noticed because I was, I really didn't fit in in this way was the parties at that company, alcohol was the focal point. Like it was total bro culture in a lot of ways. And I, alcohol was really a big thing. And I remember feeling like really I remember talking to all the acupuncturists because we were the people who were in the corner, like not drinking, you know? <laughs> um, and then, but the other, the other side of that, that's so interesting is that, you know, because like we sort of can celebrate and glorify alcohol in this culture. And then if someone sort of has quote unquote, a problem, you feel ashamed about it. Like you said, you didn't, you didn't want to actually talk about it. Or, you know, there's like this, this veil of shame that we put on people. Well, the funny thing is I went to, I went to a company event very shortly after I stopped drinking and, um, I was like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to drink again. And it's so funny, the company events that like, they were so tied into this whole thing because the first, like I really, when I, when I started on this journey in October, 2012, when I said, I'm not going to drink anymore, I showed up at one of those events and I was like, I'm not drinking. And it was boring. And I left early. And then I started drinking again at the next event at the Christmas event. And then when I finally stopped, it was after a, another event. Yeah. You can mark time by those events because they were so alcohol focused. The day after, right? They were really, they were, but it's also like the startup culture. Um, and also it's very, I think it's also very San Francisco culture. It's, it wasn't the first, it, I worked at Deloitte. It was the same thing I'd worked, you know, I mean, it's just kind of, it's what our generation does. Like we really, like we have this idea, especially our generation working in, um, I, I want to say I, for me, it was, it was kind of, uh, maybe Silicon Valley. I don't know. I haven't lived in any other cultures, but I really felt it was from the moment that I started working that it was a big, that alcohol was the big focus of it. And so it was interesting because you're exactly right. Like we, you know, in society, we have this thing with alcohol where we, we completely normalize it. It's a drug, it's ethanol. It's the same thing that we use to make gasoline and rocket fuel. It's the same thing we use to denature. It's the same thing we use to sterilize medical objects. This is the same thing that we're drinking. It is a drug. It's a neurotoxin. It actually, over time, it does more damage to the brain than Alzheimer's, than Alzheimer's does to a chronic user of it. And so it is a drug. It's, it's been classified as the most dangerous drug in the entire world between personal effects and societal effects. It's worse than heroin. It's worse than meth in terms of the damage that it does. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. It will kill one in 10 of us between 18 and 64. It's the third oh. leading cause of preventable disease. It is such a dangerous drug, but we normalize it in our society. And, and not only that, we, we protect it. And so it's normal to say, I'm so hungover today. It's normal to laugh about our hangovers. It's normal to say, I puked last night from drinking. It's normal to say, I did this when I was drinking. It's normal to say, I need a drink, which is saying I need to do a drug. Mm -hmm. It is not normal to say, hey, that doesn't work very well for me. Because once you say that I don't do really well with that, no matter how far you went down the rabbit hole, the second that you say that, people say, what's wrong with you, right? Like, oh my God, you're an alcoholic. Oh my God, you, and, and what that's saying is, wait a minute, your system, your body, your, you cannot handle a, this drug. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we completely acknowledge with any other drug that it is 
absolutely normal to not tolerate. We do not say, wait, you can't hang with cocaine. Wait, hold on. You're stopping using heroin. Like, and so it's just this, you know, and people have, I believe a very large population, like some, there's this, this recent CADC study, which basically says there's uh, 30% of people that drink. Okay. So this is like 72 million Americans have uh, drink, drink excessively. 72 million Americans abuse alcohol are in this like area. And so when you start, you know, saying I can't do it, what that does is, I mean, there's a huge pool of people out there, right? 72 million Americans that are not necessarily handling it very well themselves. And so the second that you start to kind of shine a light on that, people do not want you to ruin this party. And so it really, the experiences that I've had since, I mean, my friendships have obviously changed a lot, but also one of the bigger things is, is just realizing that people do, some people, not all people, but, but, you know, if you, especially if you're drinking a lot, you run in circles that drink a lot. It's just, it's taboo. It, it's really, it's taboo. And so anyway, I don't know if that's curious. It's my diatribe. It's no, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And, you know, I, I, I read a lot of your posts and one of the things you talk about, um, you're open about the fact that, um, a, the AA route didn't really work for you. And, um, and I, I think I read the one where you talked about some things that, you know, could change that for the positive. And, and one of them was, was to take, to think about taking away the anonymity aspect. And yeah. I had never thought about that before that, you know, that feeling like you have to be anonymous about your recovery is so stigmatizing. You know, it can be so stigmatizing. So I just, I appreciate what you're doing because I feel like you are trying to destigmatize. And I think the only way to destigmatize is to be vulnerable in front of a lot of people, you know? I think so too. And to show them. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's a double, I mean, it's one of those things, it's like cart before the horse. Like we have to, in order to, you know, it's stigmatized in order to destigmatize it. We do have to come out. And then that all, at the same time leaves us vulnerable to, you know, what the current opinion is of people who don't drink um, or who struggle with addiction. And it's interesting because I know, I know you struggled with cancer. I don't know if we can talk about this sure. here, but yeah. my mom had breast cancer at the same time that I was going through recovery and to look at what the difference was. I mean, hers was very, people knew about it and, um, I'm assuming people knew about your struggle as well. And, and, and you weren't doing this in, in silence and you weren't doing this privately, but by yourself. And for me, it was very, it was very, it was opposite. It was no one talked about it. And I, I wrote this one piece one time about how, you know, what if people who are struggling with addiction, what if we like ran to them and what if we brought them casseroles and what if, you know, we had walks for them for when they survived it and overcame it or had make a wish foundation for people that were struggling with addiction. And, but it's just, it's such a different, different beast. Yeah, no, that I remember reading that and it's true. I mean, it's true. I can't tell you how many people still inquire as to how I'm doing and, you know, and all of that. But I will say what's interesting. I was thinking about this last night as I was falling asleep for some reason that oddly enough, I still carry some shame about having cancer. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly where that comes from. I think it's just like this feeling that in our culture in general, it's really hard to have a public problem. Like it's just no matter what, even though I don't, you know, there's just part of me that's like, what did I do? How did I, you know, how did I create this? Like, I don't have a family history. I don't have the BRCA genes. Like, what did I, you know, what deodorant did I, I mean, I swear there, it still runs through my head. I mean, I have the mindful awareness to say like, Like you did this to yourself. Like you did this to yourself and you're to blame for it. Yeah. There's just a shade of that. There's just a shade. That's interesting. It's yeah. It's, it's just, I think it's just hard for us to be vulnerable, you know? And it when is. you do, and when you have cancer, everyone finds out, like I had to email my friends because Jason had to cancel a bunch of, you know, studio dates and all these things. So all of these yoga people started finding out before my closest friends did. Like within two days, uh. we, we had to start canceling events. So it was like, I just gotten the pathology and I was like, just figuring out where, which hospital I was going to go to and all these things. And I was getting all these messages and I thought, oh my God, I have to now tell everyone I know so that they don't find out on social media, like what's happening. Yeah. So oh, what a different experience. What a totally different experience. Cause no one does that <laughs> on addiction. Nobody, 
emails you and said, or, you know, it's so different, but yeah. I can imagine that be really overwhelming and also a little bit inv- like invasive. You have to kind of decide how you want to deal with it. Um, so, but that's a whole other podcast. Maybe someday you can come back and interview me about <laughs> breast cancer. <laughs> um, I want to go back to the AA thing once, just since we brought it up and, um, you know, you have a podcast partner, Laura McCowan, and she's talked about how the AA route did work for her. So no judgment for anyone listening in terms of what works for you or what doesn't. And that's the, the sense that I get from you, but I would love to know from you kind of, it sounds like if you don't go that route, it can be kind of lonely. And um, so I'd love to hear from you, you know, what were some of the aspects that didn't work and then how you created kind of your own toolkit and used different modalities, including yoga for your recovery process? Right. So by the time I stepped foot into an AA meeting, first of all, I didn't, the way that I, I backed into recovery essentially was, um, through Alan Carr's work, which basically says there's no such thing as an alcoholic, that what we've come up with is a, is a disease to give to the people that are willing to say alcohol doesn't work for them, rather than saying that there's something wrong with our need to to normalize alcohol. So I backed into it and I had a very different idea of what alcoholism, what, like of, I had a very, I already had a, a judgment. I already had a judgment about it. And not only that, I just didn't want to do it. Um, it didn't appeal to me. I wasn't there and it felt very depressing. And so, you know, I had been doing, you know, just to bring the yoga into this, I had been doing Bikram yoga since 2003. I had a panic attack when I was in my last quarter in college. I had to teach a section, um, to 200 students. Uh, and I was, I fell apart and I had to find something to manage that And that was Bikram yoga and it pulled me out of agoraphobia and it allowed me to be able to actually function in my life. And so I had been doing Bikram yoga for years and then I had been doing vinyasa yoga once I moved to San Francisco and I found Rusty Wells. And then I, so I had always been using yoga, but I'd used it as a tool in the end to really manage my hangovers and to allow me to function. It felt more like a, um, a maintenance tool. And so for me, recovery, my recovery was really, it was changing my subconscious beliefs around alcohol. It was discovering really spirituality, finding God, finding, um, course in miracles is a huge part of it. A ton of self-care, ton of massage, but this is also where I really, really started to bite into yoga. It became not just a physical practice for me and it moved way more into a spiritual practice for me. And, and I also found Kundalini yoga in January, 2013. And I had said for, you know, I've been doing yoga for 10 years at that point, And I had said, I wanted to be a yoga instructor. I'd always said that. That's what I think my Facebook profile said, uh, you know, accountant who dreams to be waitress and, and yoga instructor, but it just never called to me. And when I found Kundalini, I found yoga. Um, I really found that. And that was the, it was a huge part of my, of my past. So by the time I walked into an AA meeting, um, it was April 13th or 14th, 2013, I had stopped. I had done all this really deep work on myself for months. I'd started seeing a therapist. I'd done all of the, like I had just committed myself to healing myself. And then I went away. I stopped drinking on like March 31st or April 1st. Two weeks later at a company event, I drank again and I got really scared that I needed more help. And so I went to a meeting the next day when I got back from this company trip and I was involved with it for about a month, but it scared me more than it helped me. Um, meaning that when I walked into it, um, I knew I wasn't going to get a sponsor. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to work the steps. I enjoyed reading the book. I enjoyed going to the meetings. I loved actually, I had been doing this whole thing alone. I had never, like aside from two people, I had no one that I knew who is my, my friend's dad and a friend's husband were the only two people I knew that was it. So I went and it was like this relief to see that there were people that looked like me, but I, you know, people gave me their cards after meetings and said like, you know, like said I was messing around. Like it was just this kind of pressure that to get a sponsor, to work the steps, to get serious about it. And 
it introduced this idea that I was going to drink again. And I didn't want to focus on the idea that I was going to drink again if I didn't do this, you know, specific thing that I felt huge resistance to, mm -hmm. like gut resistance, not ego resistance. But that's a big thing, right? That's a big thing that you hear, which is that's your ego talking. That's you thinking that you're smarter than this. And I really believe that one of the things that got me through this was getting back in touch with that like internal guidance, like that, that knowing of what works for me and what I need. And that was what was in conflict was other people telling me I didn't know what I needed. And I knew what I needed. Mm -hmm. I had done, I, I hadn't started out on this path to, you know, kid myself. I'd started out on this path to uncover myself. And I wasn't, you know, like you don't choose to get sober. You don't choose to start doing this without some sort of sense of wanting something. And if you get yourself that far, I do believe that you should be able to like say, I know what feels really wrong for me. It's not a matter of doing something that's hard and having resistance to doing hard work. It's a matter of having resistance to something that you know specifically does not feel good to you. Yeah. And that was what AA was. It didn't feel good to me. And and that was it. And I, I like today, I think it's so important that we, that we respect what I was just talking about more than we respect what modality it is. Meaning I don't care how anybody gets sober. I really care that if people are doing it, that they do it in a way that feels right to them. And that's in alignment with their heart and is in alignment with what they know is best for them or feel is best for them. And that's why there's just, there's no one right, right way. There's just not. I, I've, suffered from clinical depression. I've actually written about it for yoga journal years ago. And I feel like I need to like do a new podcast about it because it's been a long time. And I feel so similarly about depression in terms of what you're talking about. Like for me, it took a village of healers <laughs> over years and I still take meds and that's my choice. And it works for yeah. me. And I, t you know, when people come to me and tell, tell me they're depressed, I never say like, why don't you try meds? Like, you know, it's just, it's what worked for me. I'm honest about it. I'm open about it. But I know that there's so many different ways that you can make things work for you and that you can heal yourself. So, I mean, it sounds like in some ways for you, the structure and the mold of AA just didn't like feel right. And so you kind of set out to create your own structure. And that seems to be also what hip sobriety is about your, your website is just like forging a path and then helping others forge a path. Um, what, what was it about Kundalini for you that like made things click that felt so good to you at that time? Well, I went to my first class when I was in New York. It was like, it was January, 2013. I was back drinking again and I was hungover and I was looking for a Bikram class. And I went to my first Kundalini class, very skeptical. Kundalini is, if anybody, if you're listening and you haven't done Kundalini, it's not what you expect. It's like, we have a very Western idea of what yoga is. And you walk in and this is like, people are, and this was this particular class, there were a lot of people wearing white. The teacher was wearing, you know, a white turban. She was very old. There were no mats. There were sheepskins. Oh, yeah, the sheepskin. And there's gongs usually. The gongs are so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they handed out chants. And I'd done a little chanting in Rusty's classes and Stephanie's classes, but I'd never done like full on, you know, long chants. And you do really weird movements. And so I left just buzzing and happy. And it's just one of those things. It's like, you know, we were just talking about Italy, like Italy is like a vortex for me. It feels like there's this draw. The first time I heard the word Kundalini, I was like, it sounds weird. And that's what I want. Um, I had been seeking something like that forever. I, when I was young, I dragged my mom to like these like weird meditation things in Fresno, California, because there was nothing there. I wanted that weird experience, like that actual, that felt like, um, yeah. that felt like it was more than just doing movement that actually felt like it was absorbed, like that you could be absorbed into it. And that was what Kundalini was. And immediately I found this Kia Miller on Yoga Glow and I started doing, I started doing a specific Kriya that, oh my God, why can't I think of the name of it? Ramadasa. I started doing Ramadasa Sase Sohang, which is the um, Gaichi, not the Gaichi. Is it the Gaichi? Oh my God, I'm so bad right now. Every Kundalini is going to hate me. Um, <laughs> I think it's the Gaichi. Yeah, the it's a healing mantra, Gaichi mantra. And, and it said, um, it balances out the left and the right side. So you're like the, the left and right hemispheres of your brain. It's very balancing. And for me, um, and it's healing. And for me, it was like, I knew that was what, again, it was just like following this like thread of like, I know that's what I need. And so I sang that chant all the time. I did that meditation 
for months. And it, and I also found other meditations and it was just, it felt like for me, it actually felt effective. If that makes any sense. It didn't feel like just going into a yoga class and relaxing. It actually felt like I know what outcome I'm going after and I'm going to get that. Um, and it worked. Mm -hmm. I mean, it worked better than anything that I did. Like learning how to breathe, learning breathing techniques and breath techniques to help me manage my energy, learning, you know, do like, and, and just being in beauty. That practice is such a beautiful practice. There is so much, there's so much to it. You're right. Like there's so many chants and so much song in it. And um, going to a class is beautiful. And so it was just what I needed. It felt like home. Yeah. I, I signed up for the training like not even, I signed up for the training in July, 2013 and became a teacher. It was so call, it called. Yeah. I've only taken a few Kundalini classes. I mean, I've, I've actually loved them, but I'm just thinking as you're talking about it, like, you know, kind of a discernible difference for me anyway, just in these few classes between Kundalini and like, say your run of the mill vinyasa classes, like, you know, we always talk about kind of balancing the nervous system in yoga and like stimulating the relaxation response and all those things. And, but Kundalini has a very ecstatic element. Like, you know, there's, there's very much an element of like faster movements. And like, really, I wonder if, you know, that feeling of like release and sweating and moving things through you and moving things out. And like you said, kind of something that's um, like when you said, I wanted weird, like something that takes you outside of your daily self. Yeah. That seems like that's such a fun aspect of Kundalini. I felt my skin come off in that training. I mean, there was nothing that I've been through that's been as, as life-changing as, as, as doing that, you know, like it just, it gets to your core. It, it, it's very, it's powerful. And you start to actually understand how powerful you are. Um, and it is, it's like, I'm a high energy person and it is for me, like there just feels like there's no way that I can channel my energy better than, than this. And you're right. There's an ecstatic element to it. It is, it's transformative. It's, it's, it's a quickly, it transforms you very quickly. And it does, it does all those things, especially for someone recovering from addiction. It, you know, balances the endocrine system. Like specifically you work on the endocrine system and also balances the nervous system. It it got me, it really helped me get a hold of my anxiety and helped me get a hold of my nerves. It balances the digestive system. Um, It's, you know, it does all of these things that really help to, you know, these are the things that are really out of whack for somebody who's been abusing alcohol and drugs. The endocrine system's out of whack. You know, your sleep cycle is off. uh, Your hormones are completely off. You know, there's a lot of voice work. We've usually, we, you know, our fifth chakra are, you know, usually we, we kind of close off there. Our hearts close. You know, there's just like, there's such direct action and such direct work on all these places that get really, really damaged um, in addiction. I found it to, to be the thing that probably healed me the fastest. And I credit it for a lot of my recovery. It's amazing. Are you, are you teaching now? I, I love teaching, but it's not my, it's not my Dharma. Yeah. I teach through my program. So I I infuse it into helping people recover from addiction, but I do not just teach classes. I have, I tried to do it, but like no one came and I just had a very clear sense that my, I was not meant to just be like, not just be, but it was just not my thing to be a Kundalini teacher. It was my thing to teach Kundalini through the medium that I feel the most called to do, which is teach people how to stop drinking. So, Uh uh-huh. One of the things that I took from a post of yours is where you said, if I were ever to enjoy a life free of needing to to escape through alcohol or pot or bulimia Mm -hmm. or cigarettes, regardless of what method I used, I'd need to figure out what was driving me to escape and fix that. So how did you, you know, did you figure that out for yourself? You know, what was driving you to escape? I'm still figuring it out. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like you start to... You start to remove the things that get in the way of you really knowing yourself. When the alcohol becomes less important or you start to remove the alcohol, you're kind of start, you get left with these parts of you. And the things that were really driving me to escape in the early, early, like early points of this were that I lived a fake life, right? I wasn't, I wasn't living authentically and I wasn't listening to my heart. I was very worried about what other people thought of me. You know, the very first things that were driving me to escape were, were really like all the fear-based thoughts that I had which was people don't like me. I'm not good enough. I'm a fraud. I'm a liar. I'm going to die from substance abuse, um, this lack of alignment. And so those are the things that were, you know, forcing me to escape early on was, um, was, you know, those are the big things that were keep like forcing me. I was not living a life that was true to my heart. And so, you know, the, that was the first, the second wave came in understanding that my purpose was not really being fulfilled and that 
it was misaligned between what I was actually doing for a living and where my heart was and that I wasn't bringing forth the creative aspects of myself and, and, and not really like participating and bringing, you know, like actually bringing forth what was in me. There's this great Jesus quote that comes from the gospel of St. Thomas, which is if you bring forth what's in you, what you bring forth will save you. And if you don't bring forth what's in you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And so that was a big second wave was just bringing forth, like I was needing to escape. A lot of people need to escape from, you know, think that addiction is about escaping from the bad stuff. But a lot of times addiction is also about escaping from the unlived life and escaping from the parts of ourselves that we know are there, but we are too afraid to bring out. And so that was like the second wave was just finding my purpose and finding my creativity. And then the third wave was speaking, right? Like actually standing out in the world and putting my words out there and putting my voice out there and putting this thing out there um, and starting to live my purpose. That was terrifying. And and that's another thing that you, you know, like if you don't handle that very well, or like you have to be able to to stand in the fire and actually stand in, in the uncertainty. And so that was, you know, the third wave. And, and then the stuff that I've been dealing with and that I've been needing to escape with that has become clear, you know, as sobriety has continued is my relationships with men and and all the stuff that surrounds that. And so humans are wired to escape. That's what we do. We all humans escape. And, and it doesn't matter if it looks like addiction to alcohol or if it's just a lot of Netflix or if it's just gossip mags or if it's, you know, just buying stuff. We all find ways to not be with ourselves. And that is what the journey is of being a human is you know on this path you know it's it's all about finding where you're hooked and continually working with that um cuz when you're not hooked you know then you're not here then you're like Jesus yeah but it's it's this continual path of looking at where you're hooked and some are more obvious like alcohol and drugs and cigarettes and some are less obvious like your relationship with your mother-in-law or, you know, it's... Or your it's, phone or... <laughs> seriously. <laughs> no, I, you know, it's getting really bad. to me like as you're talking you know you're in your late 30s now and like you you are kind of standing on your own two feet and like out in the world and doing your thing living your dharma and you know it just strikes me that we're all kind of you know the drinking age in the United States at least is 21 um and it's this time in our lives where no matter who you are you're pretty lost you're at the very least you're just at the beginning of discovering who you are as an adult, I've heard some psychologists call, you know, 18 to 29, the organizing years, right? It's, huh. it's the time in your life where you're, you're not standing on your own two feet, usually living your dharma, clear on who you are, clear in the world, self-confident, all those things. And, you know, and so it kind of, it's just this difficult confluence of things that like, that's the drinking age. That's when everyone starts partying. Everyone wants to fit in. Everyone's looking around trying to fit in. So yeah, I mean, I just wonder if you could go back, like, what would you say to your younger self about anything? Not necessarily just about alcohol. Oh, I would tell her that she's doing awesome. And I would tell her that it's going to be so rough, but to just keep doing her thing. The thing is, I wouldn't change a thing. I... I feel I had to break. Mm -hmm. I really do. I feel I'm lucky to have broken. Um, I feel that it's it's a beautiful thing to actually wake up to who you are, no matter how you do it. And that was how I think I had to do it. I don't think I've, if I hadn't made so many mistakes that I wouldn't be here. And I'm grateful to, I'm grateful to that. But I would just go back and tell her it's going to be so hard, but I promise you it just keeps working out, Yeah, you know, and that you're so strong and you'll make it through all of that stuff. Because um, that's what I would say to myself today too, mm -hmm. right? I know. You you're keep saying so it. okay, baby. Like you've got this and it's going to be so hard, but I promise you it just keeps working out. You strike me as such a resourceful person because you, like you said, 
people go through this largely alone unless they are able to kind of fit into a certain specific the specific path of AA and you've kind of put all of these things together, all of these modalities together. So can you talk about that? Like, I know you offer, do you offer an online course? Yeah, I do, which I'm trying to transform into something. I offer it right now, like three times a year, and I'm, I'm trying to move it into like a rolling thing that's more or less like online recovery. Um, yeah, I offer, you know, so for me, it was, here's, here's how it was. I worked in healthcare and I um, was like, had this epiphany as I'm going through this, I really did. I, I talked to doctors while I was still drinking, like friends of mine. And, and, you know, I just, I said like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to heal myself. And then I'm going to show you guys, <laughs> um, like how to fix addiction. And so for me, it was at first, like just having this moment of realizing we were missing it. Right. And so then that didn't work. <laughs> and then when I left, I, I came home, I, I started to think like, how do I translate why this worked so well for me? Because my life changed very quickly and very positively. I put all these post-it notes up on my wall and I was like, okay, here's my path. And I was like, that doesn't sound, it just didn't look right. It just didn't look like, okay. So you like on, you know, like at week one, read this book and then start, you know what I mean? It was huh. just like, it worked for me, but there was no framework to it. There was actually no, there was nothing to really guide. Um, there was nothing to actually give it to somebody to be rep to be replicated. Um, and so I found a really great framework called integral recovery by John Dupuy, which is Ken Wilber's work It's basically repurposed for recovery. And in that framework, all of my pieces fit. Oh, and wow. so what I do with people now, it's not the same as integral recovery. It's a, it's the, but it is using that framework. I read that book in Italy and I, it was just like all of a sudden I could see why all the post-it notes worked. I like all of a sudden I understood the pattern. I understood why I had gotten well and why I had gotten well so quickly. And so I took all of that and I just basically put it into that model. And that is what I do now is, is most of the uh, blog posts I put out and if I put out any tools, they're all specifically coming from this place of, of offering this up. And I do, I started coaching clients one-on-one -on -one and um, taking them through this process. And then I turned it into a group program where I could take multiple people at once. And so the idea is to create something that's replicable and that can expand and grow and support a lot of people as either an alternative or as a complement to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I've had a lot of people that I've worked with that have that either are not at the place where they can even begin to think about it. I've had people that are outright, no, I am not that. I've had people that have tried it and it has not worked for them. And I have people that have loved it, um, are in it, are working it and using it. And so it's just, it's across the board and it's just a testament to how important it is to have individual paths, um, and, and, and the, the ability to go through them. And I'm imagining because this is such a, was such a big part of your recovery that a big part of what you're teaching is like mind body connection. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a really big, important part of it. Meditation is one of the things I recommend and meditation is yoga, as you know. Um, a lot of people think they're two different things, but meditation is yoga. Meditation is at the it's it's the thing that I say. It's like it's my non-negotiable, and it's one of the things that I promote. And I, like I started a daily meditation practice in 2013, and it's been the foundation of my recovery. Not just Kundalini meditation, but you know Vipassana meditation. I just did a 10-day silent retreat this year. Vipassana meditation, guided meditations. I love Elena Brower's meditations. She has great guided meditations. And I also love Gabby Bernstein's. I love um, Insight Timer. It's a great app with guided meditation. So I do like kind of everything. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really build that into the program, which is every day. Absolutely. Because what we, what happens in addiction primarily, like one of the biggest things is we, we lose control of our brains. Like the part of our brain, the human part of our brain that makes decisions, the, the prefrontal cortex is the part that gets dismantled. Essentially what happens in addiction over time is that that part of our brain is subordinated to um, the reptilian part of our brain, the survival part of our brain. And so we actually lose, it's the, it's some people have called it the disease of choice because we lose that ability to make decisions. And that part, the prefrontal cortex is where our personality is. It's where our spirituality is. It's where our ideas of mor morality is. It's where our, our individual, like our, it's where humanness is. And so meditation is 
not the only way, but it is one of the best ways to actually start to rebuild the prefrontal cortex and to create new synapses and to strengthen your brain. And so it's like taking your brain to the gym. It's such an important part of it. And so mindfulness, meditation is one of the most important parts of recovery. And then the second part is absolutely, um, I love Kundalini yoga because it does, there's like chanting is works on rebalancing the endocrine system, which gets destroyed. It works on rebalancing the nervous system. It also allows you to work on very specific parts of your body, like um, your digestive tract, or it allows you to work on, it gives you really great breathing tools to manage cravings. And then also, so I, I really try and show like, okay, here's a, like, for instance, here's a meditation. If you like to deal with when you're hurt, there's a, there's a meditation to deal with you're emotionally hurt. So you don't react and you just, you know, simply put your hands under your armpits and tuck your chin and then you do the specific breathing thing. And that will actually help you deal with, with that. Or here's a meditation to help you, um, release anger very quickly. And so, you know, we, when we're not numbing out from, you know, numbing through our emotions anymore in, in recovery, our emotions are kind of come up to the surface. Yeah. 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 Never dealt with stuff before. A lot of people are just like, what is this? And I feel like this roller coaster and all the things at once. And so having really great tools, Oh, I know when I'm anxious, I can do this. I know when I feel when I feel like I want to punch somebody, I can do this. I know that when I am, you know, feeling very lonely, I can do this. Um, I know when I'm craving and I want to drink, I can do this. And so Kundalini is great at being, it's a really effective and applicable practice. And then I also infuse, I really encourage using vinyasa. Steph Snyder's of, is my, like, uh, is my, guru. Um, I did her training. I love her classes on yoga glow. Um, and they're a really great, easy, accessible way. She has a recovery series specifically on yoga glow. She has very, very wonderful vinyasa classes that help people, uh, give people an introduction to using vinyasa for recovery. So those are the three elements that I really promote and many others like the, it's, it's a huge part of it. It's a huge part of it. I didn't know that about the, the, the brain. I've done several stories about how meditation changes the brain. And it's amazing because the first one I did was at least, at least six years ago. And I did another one recently for Rodale. And, and it's like so much more information is, is being unearthed like every year. There were so many new studies that I was able to, to find. So if addiction, you know, damages or, you know, leads to deterioration of the prefrontal cortex, does that also contribute to issues with impulse control. Yeah. 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 For sure. Absolutely. But also if you just think about it, the discipline of yoga helps with the discipline control as well. Right. I mean, it's like, it's one of those things where it's just so obvious that it's so good because if you can sit like, and yoga as well. So for instance, like Kundalini is great. If you can sit through an 11 minute meditation with your hands in the air and like, it's awful and you want to be anywhere, but there, but you can do it. Mm -hmm. Then when you're off of your mat, you can actually stand in the fire and burn through it as well. Or if you can sit and you can do a 20 minute meditation and keep calling your mind back, right? You're, you're basically training that ability to stay in discomfort. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also you're creating the space, right? It does. I mean, there's probably 40 things I could explain that it does, but like the, the topper that it gives you the space before. So you can actually, you have this mindfulness around it. You can see what's happening. You cannot give in to the animal reaction. So it gives you space around it too. It just strengthens it. It's just like, there's a study that was done and I can't remember where, um, but just the, the main idea of it is there was people that imagined, um, doing a finger exercise where they were bending their finger, um, versus people that actually did the finger exercise, there wasn't much difference Mm -hmm. over a period of time in the amount of muscle mass between the people that imagined doing the exercise and brought the energy and the attention to the finger and the people that actually did it, physically did it, which is to say when we are, where you're focusing, when you're meditating, you're focusing at that third eye point, you're focusing right there at the, where the prefrontal cortex is, you're bringing that energy up there. And so you're strengthening, you're bringing, you're basically just like right now, if you were to think about your pink finger and you can feel the energy go to that pinky finger. Same thing as you're bringing energy and blood flow to that place in your head. So you're just naturally strengthening it, you know, and then attention, it improves your ability to focus your attention and it, you know, diminishes your reactivity and it just, there's so much yeah, that it does. So much. And it also just, yeah. you know, I'm sure it brings a feeling of wholeness, right? Like when you connect 
the body and the mind together when you start to realize like, I'm thinking these things and my body feels this way, or I drink and my body feels that way. And when you start to make all those connections, it just makes you realize like, oh, I'm a whole being and I have this whole, I remember actually early on in my teacher training when Sarah Powers, we would sit in meditation and she would say like, you have a foundation inside of you. You have a whole inner altar inside of you that you can depend on. And it sounds so obvious, but I had never been, <laughs> nothing had ever been explained to me that, right? Everything I was always outward seeking, like, like you said, outward seeking approval, outward seeking acknowledgement, outward seeking praise, outward seeking achievement, all of these things, right? Without being told like, no, there's just this whole, there's this place inside of you that's already whole. It's right there. You just have to know that it's there. You just have to be able to know that it's there to access it. That's right. And that's, that is another really great point to it as well, which is it gives you, I mean, all, a lot of the teachings that have helped me on my way to continue to transcend come from in those rooms where you can hear something like that, mm. where you can hear what you just said, which is where you and, and hear it and understand it. And then also just the feeling that you get sometimes when you, when you make that connection like that, when you actually make that like, like for me, it's like feeling God. It's like actually like breaking through something else. And that's what really we're trying to do when with drugs and alcohol is a lot of times we're trying to feel something greater than ourselves. Mm, um, and for me, it was, I, there, there were some times in meditation, especially in the early part where I would just start bawling because I actually felt something and I hadn't felt something in so long that it like, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like I think it, that it, happens to so many people, regardless of what you're what you're struggling with inside. People say that all the time. Like I'm so embarrassed. I just cried in yoga today. It's like no, your teachers probably felt great that you were feeling something. <laughs> I made them you cry. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so true. It's so true. It is. <sighs> How does your yoga practice support you these days? You said meditation. Yeah, so I do meditation. I got to do it. I'm going to do it right after we get off the call. I'm going to do a 20-minute, just Vipassana today. Um, I have a very, like, plug and play. Like, I, I fit it around my – I fit it into my life. Mm -hmm. um, it's not as extensive as I want it to be, but – I'm into vinyasa right now. Mm -hmm. So I have a great little studio in my neighborhood here in LA that I love going to. Um, and I love their classes. And so I do like hot vinyasa for 60 minutes about four times a week. Um, and if I'm not um, practicing there, then I'm practicing at home doing either. I'll do like a, I love Kia Miller on yoga glow. So I'll do, um, like a, a quick Kundalini set. Um, but today I'm probably going to do a stuff class cause I'm not going to make it to a yoga class mm -hmm. on, I'm so do one of stuff's class on yoga glow. And if Jason's on yoga glow, I do his classes too sometimes. Um, so it's like maintenance for you. It's like keeping everything. If I didn't do it, things would be really bad. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, um, I was like, sometimes I will move calls that's one of the things that's worked for me really well is like, I know my body's like, Oh God, you need to do this right now. And this, it's funny, like right after this, like I know I need to sit and just still my mind for 20 minutes. It's I'm really in touch with what my body needs. So I don't have to do this like crazy, you know, two hour practice every day or whatnot. I can kind of do exactly what I need to do, but I do know if I don't do yoga and I don't meditate, it turns bad quick. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm used to, I'm used to feeling a certain way at this point and I can feel when I'm not feeling that way and, and, and it's not great. Okay. Last question. I, I want to let you go and do your meditation, but I want, I really want to ask you, it's a big question. <gasps> One of the things that you, in your blog post you wrote about, it was like when you were first in recovery, I think you sort of felt this, you wished like no one would drink anymore. You, it was just like, you wish it could just be eradicated. Like, what, what are your feelings now in terms of like, what do you, what would you wish for our culture? Like if you could see a change in the way that we approach alcohol or any addiction, like what would your wish be? What was, what's the change that you would like to see? Our world is in so much pain. I live in downtown LA. I live a block away from Skid Row and I walk past people that are on the streets and other people walk past them every day too. The same thing happened in San Francisco last week when I was there is that like there's this guy outside at Starbucks. And that's the thing that gets me the most is when you see people suffering on the street and you see a society that turns a blind eye to them. Our society is sleepwalking and the world is in so much pain. And we spend so much money on this idea that happiness comes through a bottle and happiness comes through a drug or an escape or a car. 
And so for me, I don't, I do wish that everyone would stop drinking. I think it's like, I I'm for to be clear. I am radical on this. I am so for legalization and decriminalization. Like, I, I think we need to like remove, remove all of the fight around it especially like the, when you look at the, um, the prison industrial complex and you look at what's happened and how, how addiction is treated, it's treated within the criminal justice system. And it's a mess. It's a disaster. It's a costly disaster and it doesn't work. But what I am saying is I really do, for me, I see a world where we choose to stay with ourselves. I see a world where, where it's the socially acceptable thing is not to go and get blind drunk. I see a world where we all wake up and we all understand we have a responsibility to one another in that if we don't wake up, we will not have what we have for very much longer. It's going fast. It's going very fast. And we all, every single one of us, all 7.2 billion of us need to stand up and actually take responsibility for what's happening around us. We cannot live in a society, especially here in America, where we have so much and we walk past people that have so little. It's just we will look back at this and wonder what, how we could have gone so wrong. And so for me, it all comes back to individual responsibility. And for me, it's like, stop wasting. Let's stop wasting time, people, please. Like, let's wake up like to who we are. Let's wake up to the beauty that we have around us. Let's wake up to the people that are next to us that need us to wake up for them. Let's please. And then on the other side of it, I have a niece and it's like what we do with alcohol. It's like a crapshoot. You know what I mean? Like a lot, like 10% of people that drink will become addicted to it. And so it's like a crapshoot. It's like saying, I'm not sure if you're the one that's not going to be able to handle alcohol, but you know, let's see, let's Let's see, let's let's just roll the dice and see if you, if you can handle it. Let's see, you know, and, and it's even, I mean, it's even more than that. It's, you know, 30% of people that, that consume, consume excessively in a way that damages their health. And so it's like saying, let's see, let's line you up, let's line up 10 of your friends and let's see which three of you are going to have an abusive relationship with alcohol. And so it's, it's, Oh my God. That's no, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's normalize it. Let's say mommy needs a drink. Let's, you know, let's say like, I deserve this margarita. Let's say all this, let's use, let's keep using drugs in front of our kids. And then let's see if, if when they start using it, it's going to work out for them. And so, yeah, no, I totally think we should stop drinking. And I think it's ridiculous, but you know, that's me. (laughs) I mean, yeah, this interview is about you, but I'm actually pretty much on the same page. Yeah. But thank you for asking that question. It's kind of one of my favorites. Good. Yeah, no, it's a big, it's a big question. And I I mean, you know, again, I'm just like, want to, I just want to bring these things to light. Yeah. It's so important. It's such an important topic to discuss. Addiction is, it touches so many of us and so many suffer in silence. And it also is just like, it's like, it's so funny in Italy, people have no weirdness around it. So they'll just ask me, you don't drink. Why don't you drink? What'd you do? What happened? And here, nobody really talks about it or asks me. I I said this, I was on recovery 2.0 and I said this to Tommy Rosen. I said like my extended family has never asked me about it ever. They just don't talk about it. And most people just don't talk about it unless they're in your, unless they're in a recovery circle. And it's like, please, can we please talk about this? Can we please talk about this? Like, let's just talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, again, back to the stigma, you know, back Mm -hmm. to the like feeling like, Oh, let's talk about Holly when we go into the kitchen, but we won't ask her to her face. You know what I mean? Mm-mm, let's not, because that might be uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for talking about it. And Oh, and thank you for asking me. It's so crazy. Who knew, right? Know. Like five years ago, who knew I know. we'd be here. And it's funny because also I reached out to you a couple of years ago because Jason came and taught um, – I knew you and I knew Jason. People had said, oh, her husband is like a big deal in the yoga community. And I knew you worked at Yoga Journal and I never looked up who your husband was. And then Jason taught my part of my training at, oh. at through Steph Snyder's training. And then somebody said, oh, his wife is an editor at Yoga Journal or whatever. And I was like, it finally it came together. together. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. That's and then so I, funny. Anyway, so that was when I reached out. Um, yeah. You guys are wonderful. You oh, both are. You. But it's it's been fun meeting you both separately and then making that connection. I know. Uh, and I was so happy to hear that you love Steph because we're good friends with Steph and we love Steph. And I find Steph to be like such a powerful presence too. So it doesn't surprise me at all that she's been so helpful 
you know, she's my teacher and she's, it's so funny because she, in training, she said, um, that she never wanted to be friends with Dharma Mitra. And that's how I feel about her, which is, I have this like reverence for her. Mm -hmm. Um, I respect her so much and I just, I love being in her presence. I went and took her class when I was there in San Francisco last week. And I cry every time I hear her voice just because it's familiar and it's always been familiar. So she's, if anybody has a chance to check out her, like, especially in recovery, oh my God, because she's sober. Yep. And she's been on the podcast too. So you can go back and listen to a podcast episode. I started listening to it. I need to finish it. It's good. It's um, good. We sat in my daughter's room on the floor (laughs) to do the interview. Everybody just FYI. That's how cozy you get if you're if we do the Yoga Land podcast together. We sit on a four year old's floor because it's like the quietest room in the house. You have to find the quiet spot. I did. I'm I'm not in the quiet spot right now, but I used to do it in my closet floor, um, inside my in my walk in closet in San Francisco because it was the quiet space. So we have I get so it. much stuff in her room. It's very padded. You know what I mean? Like yeah. So yeah. All right, awesome. dear. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been wonderful. And Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Lots of love. Bye. Thanks as always for listening. I will put links to Holly's podcast and her website and all that good stuff up on the show notes page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 21. I just went to Holly's website today and I saw that she is starting another one of her sobriety schools. It starts October 13th. So you can go to the website and check that out if that is of interest to you. So much love to you, everyone. You can find me on Twitter at Yogaland Podcast. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, go to jasonyoga.com and sign up for our newsletter. We send such great free content on the regular. And also, if you feel so moved, I would love a five-star review on iTunes. Take care and enjoy your practice. <laughs>